For any of you who have ever been in any sort of a dating relationship, which I'm guessing probably includes just about every single person watching over the age of 16, can, can you remember when you first introduced your boyfriend, when you first introduced your girlfriend to people that you really cared about? When you first introduced him or her to a person, maybe even a group of people whose opinions you really valued? And walking into that scenario, I mean, you really felt like an absurd, almost an unhealthy amount of pressure that all would go smoothly, that all would go well. It's almost like this game of poker, and I mean, you're all in, that the chips have all been pushed into the middle of the table, and now you're to that river card, and it better turn up, it better turn up that specific card, or you are done. The game is over. Mom, Dad, your best friend, your cousin, your brother, sister, better like him, better like her, or you might as well have ended the relationship yesterday. And, and meanwhile, the person you're dating, they have no idea how important this one interaction is. That they have no idea that the fate of the relationship is hanging on this one meal, this one drink, this one evening. That the, the, the opinion of this one person, family member, friend matters so much to you. And so you're driving there and you're sweating bullets and he's just kind of sitting in the passenger seat with a stupid look on his face. He's like, I wonder what we're going to have for dinner. And, and then, and then the worst happens. And some of you, I know this is hitting way too close to home. It does not go well. He, she senses the pressure of the moment that they stop acting like themselves, and your mom, your dad, your friend, your sister doesn't get to see the side of him, doesn't get to see the side of her that you have grown to appreciate so much. The, the, the person that you just spent the last two painful hours at dinner with in no way resembles who you've fallen in love with. It's like this ugly, bizarro version of that person, and now you're left playing cleanup. You're now, over the next couple of weeks, you're trying to send texts, you're trying to make small talk with all these people, doing everything in your power to try and convince your mom, to try and convince your dad, your friend, your sibling, that that meal was not an accurate representation of the boyfriend, of the girlfriend. In fact, the same thought keeps circulating around in your head. Ugh, if they only really knew him. Ugh, if they only really knew her. Because you know if they understood that person like you understand that person, there's no way they wouldn't like him. There's no way they would not like her. There's not a chance that they wouldn't want to get to know him. They wouldn't want to get to know her better. And church, I present to you the tension, the nagging, persistent, want-to-rip-my-hair-out feeling that I wrestle with almost constantly. Every day as I pastor this church, sometimes it just makes me sad. Other times it makes me want to quit. At times, I'll admit, it just makes me angry. But by this point, some of you are probably thinking, like, what in the heck did I get myself into today? Allow me to explain this a little better. See, our, our mission here at this church at Grumlaw is to lead people towards Jesus. And honestly, we'll do just about anything short of sin to get people to come walking through our doors. I mean, it's why we take first impressions so seriously, making sure you feel welcome from the moment that you drive onto our grounds. It's, it's why we do things like community movie nights, and we have big Christmas light displays. It's, it's why we make sure that Grumlaw Kids is a place that your kids beg to come back to. But 
The end goal, and what we're trying to move every person towards is an intimate, a growing, a real relationship with Jesus. And so, as the pastor of this church, when someone has been coming here for a while, and they show up every single week and they listen to the sermons, I mean, they take in the entire service, but but yet there's no real tangible change in their life that would suggest that they have a real, vibrant, growing relationship with Jesus. I'm telling you, that's almost maddening for a guy like me. I personally, and I promise this isn't just a me thing, I've actually ran this by plenty of pastors to know that a lot of us have this in common. I personally am not moved by people just showing up to church consistently. I'm, don't get me wrong, it's a piece of the puzzle, but, but it's not necessarily indicative of a growing relationship with Jesus. For instance, I have a close friend who works for New Balance. Actually, he works for Warrior Hockey, but it's owned by New Balance. Anyway, his name's Kirk Allen. And because I love Kirk, and because New Balance also happens to make really, really high-quality shoes, I buy basically all of my footwear for me, my family, my kids, my wife, all of it from New Balance. But let's just say, hypothetically, once a week, I go to newbalance.com and I spend an hour on there. I check out their shoes. I marvel at their amazing designs. I'm just kind of window shopping, as the boomers would call it. But it's literally a part of my weekly routine. Every single week, I spend at least one hour at newbalance.com checking out their stuff. But, but when it comes to those three or four times a year when I actually need to buy a pair of shoes for myself or my spouse or my kids... I head on over to Nike.com and I buy all of my shoes there. Is New Balance, is my friend Kirk excited that, well, at least I'm going to NewBalance.com once a week? No, they do not care because I'm still buying Nikes. It has not actually led to any tangible change in my life. I'm just checking things out. I'm just window shopping. And for so many people, Church has become a part of their weekly routine, but, but they walk out the doors, they, they close the browser, and, and nothing has tangibly changed. That their relationship with Jesus is non-existent or it hasn't grown a lick. And, and I'm telling you, for people like me, pastors, people who work for a church, Shoot, just people who have a, a relationship with Jesus and, and know what it's like to know Jesus like you know a spouse, like you know a friend. I mean, that, that, that can be so frustrating. It, it can be maddening. It, it can be sad. We're, we're, we're kind of collectively sitting back going, Ugh, if they only really knew him. See, if you really knew Jesus, it would be impossible to walk out these doors on Sundays to close that browser and not want to know him more, to, to, to not want to get to know him better, to, to, to not just look up to the heavens and, and utter the words, I love you. So, so that church is, is kind of the premise of this entire series, and and why I really believe that this series is so incredibly important. This series, to be clear, it's not God, it's not Jesus saying to all of us, I love you. He does love you, by the way. That's just not where we're going here for the next four weeks. It's, it's hopefully prayerfully moving us to a place where, where we better understand who Jesus is. 
in turn, we, we cannot help but look to him and say, Jesus, I love you. Because, and I'll certainly own a big part of this as the primary communicator, the primary teacher at this church. I think the better we understand who Jesus is, the more you're going to want to get to know him. And inevitably, the more you will fall in love with him. Just like that boyfriend that you're certain your friends and your family are going to love because, well, how couldn't they? See, when you think about it, just about everything in life that we approach, we approach with this mindset of what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Your career choice, where you go out to eat, how you spend your free time, who you date. And I think we'd all be a little bit naive to think that that doesn't spill over into our spiritual lives at least a little bit as well. I mean, come on, just about every single one of you, you don't have to admit this, but you started checking out church for the exact same reason. What's in it for me? You wanted to be able to tangibly point to something here that will make you or your life better. And by the way, if, if that's what drove you here this morning, <laughs> we're not even saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. We're so glad you're here. But, but if you've been at this church thing for a while, for some of you, you've been at this church thing for literally your entire life, and, and you're still asking this question, what's in it for me? I'm, I'm telling you, you are missing out on the richness, the joy, the contentment of what Jesus has invited you into. A, a real, a vibrant, a growing, an intimate relationship with the living God. And, and so our, our goal here over these next four weeks, and I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag here on the front end, it, it's not to give you life hacks. It, it's not to show you teachings from Jesus and explain how they apply to your life. I mean, that stuff's good, but again, not the goal for this series. Our, our goal is to simply teach you about Jesus, who is God in the flesh, so, so that you better understand who God is. And, and our prayer is that as you better understand who God is, you cannot help but falling in love with him. You, you can't help but, but want to get to know him better, get to know him deeper. You, you can't stop yourself from looking to him and saying, Jesus, I love you. Father, we thank you that you are a God that cares so much about us. We thank you for what you're going to do here over these four weeks of this series. We thank you uh, that we just have these opportunities to kind of collectively come together and learn about you. And so, God, that is our prayer, that we would understand you better, understand who you are, uh, and it would move all of us to a place where uh, we're just looking to you and saying, good grief, God, I love you so, so much. I, I want all of us here to, to consider maybe just for a moment how deep that desire to be liked to be admired, to be loved runs in every single one of us. How it affects and impacts basically everything that we say, everything that we do. It, it impacts what type of clothes that you wear. In fact, just this last week, I was in Southern Indiana visiting my in-laws and on Tuesday, I, I got out my computer. I was like, okay, it's time to write the message for this week. And I had gray sweatpants on and I wanted to put on my gray sweatshirt. It's my favorite sweatshirt. But I know that, that in society, you can't put gray on gray, otherwise you become like a social pariah. And so I instead put on a black sweatshirt, even though I knew the only people that were going to see me was my wife, my kids, and my mother-in-law. But I'm like, okay, you just can't wear gray on gray. It, it impacts how we speak, how we portray ourselves on social media, what you do and don't post. It impacts the type of vehicle you drive. <laughs> Think about that. Many of you watching right now, 
have willingly gone into tens of thousands of dollars of debt, all because you want people to admire, to like the vehicle that you drive. It it impacts the house you purchased or didn't purchase. It impacts the music that you listen to. Until we have a healthy appreciation of how deep this actually runs in us, we, we are kidding ourselves about our motives. See, you see, even those people in your life that say things like, well, I, I don't care what people think of me. Wrong. They're lying. In, in fact, the very fact that they felt compelled to point that out to you, this I don't care what people think of you, it reveals that that could not possibly be the case. I mean, think about it. If you truly didn't care what other people think of you, The very thought to point this out to others would not have even crossed your mind. What people think of me is a very, very, very powerful motivator. And it shapes us so much more than any of us would probably like to admit. We adapt, all of us, to the social foliage around us. We are, and some of y'all sound offensive, we are, in essence, a bunch of chameleons. About 18 months ago, uh, I have a friend who's in a pretty famous band, and I uh, knew him before he got famous, and now, you know, he's got like millions, you know, Instagram followers, you know, sell, selling out all these massive concerts and stuff, and I, I was replying to a text with him, and, and, and I caught myself doing this where I was like so calculated with every word that I was writing back to him because now he was a famous guy, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't screw up my text so that he didn't like me anymore because I had to stay friends with the famous person. I like caught myself doing I'm like, what are you doing? Even right now, as I'm telling you this story, there's a tension inside of me of, okay, do I share the band? Do, do I tell you what the name of this guy is? Because if I do, maybe this will somehow win me some level of like credibility. Some of you maybe will think I'm cooler because I know somebody famous. I spoke at uh, Free recently, which is our middle school program. And I woke up that morning, you know, head comes flying off the pillow after the alarm goes off. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm speaking at the middle school. I'm speaking at Free tonight. And I promise you, as a grown man, I went into my closet and very selectively put on an outfit that I thought that middle schoolers would like, that I thought middle schoolers would think was cool. That night when I spoke, I spoke in a different way. I tried to use language that, again, middle schoolers would be able to relate to and think was cool. I I am admitting to you right now, as a grown man, I cared and still do care about what middle schoolers think of me. We have an incredible example of how deep this actually runs in the book of Matthew. Matthew is one of those four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. And here we actually see it can become like a life and death issue. We're told why, specifically in Matthew chapter 14, why John the Baptist was ultimately put to death. For those of you who aren't familiar with John the Baptist, he was kind of the guy who paved the way for Jesus. He's the guy that was announcing, hey, the savior of the world will soon come. And ultimately he was put to death. And here's why, Matthew chapter 14. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Needless to say, Herodias' mother didn't care for John the Baptist. The king was distressed because he actually kind of liked John the Baptist, but because, don't miss this, because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. You catch that? Because of his dinner guests? He had a man's head chopped off because of dinner guests? Peer pressure? The, the, the fear of man? What, what will others think of me? 
I'm telling you, this runs deep. John Eldridge is a, a pretty famous Christian author, and he, he wrote a book that's actually in, in kind of my favorite top 10. In fact, a lot of, of what we're talking about in this series was actually inspired by this book called Beautiful Outlaw. All of you watching, I would highly, highly recommend. I'll give you permission right now to jump over to Amazon and actually buy this book. Again, Beautiful Outlaw by John Eldridge. So, so good. In speaking to this and how deep this runs in us, he has this quote in that book. He says, only when you have taken an honest look inside yourself and seen what really fuels the things you do, will you appreciate how utterly remarkable it is to be true and how utterly desirable this is for ourselves. Now, now most of what is false about us, it comes down to something that I've actually already alluded to. Uh, three simple words, fear of man. I, I can think of so many occasions really over the past couple of years where someone has specifically asked me to go to coffee or lunch. And, and I'm admitting that nothing inside of me wants to go. Nor do I even think it's the best use of my time. But yet, I say yes and I go. Why? Fear of man. Fear of disappointing that person. Fear, fear of being thought of as someone who doesn't say yes to those sorts of requests. Fear that if I ever need something from that person, they're going to say no to me because I rejected their request. I, I cringe, I cringe thinking about how much I do or don't do out of the fear of man. Again, this, this runs so much deeper than any of us would like to admit. But but it's not the case for exactly one human being in the history of mankind. Want to guess? Yep, get the church answer, Jesus. In fact, all throughout scripture, Jesus says like these, these startlingly honest things to people that, that, that most of us, when we read it, I mean, we, we wince, we cringe because we have never observed, we have never met someone this true. There's this one occasion where Jesus is inside and his family, specifically his brothers and his mother, are outside and they want to speak to Jesus because the crowd is, is so big and because there's so many people, they can't get to Jesus. And so they kind of send a messenger to go, hey, hey, your family's waiting outside. And we all know, right, we're supposed to respect our mamas, right? But listen to how Jesus responds to this request. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they, they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who, who are my brothers? That, then he pointed to his disciples and he said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Translation, he left them waiting outside. And it's like, what? Okay, I thought the Bible said all these things about honoring our father and honoring our mother. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's actually one of like those 10 commandments. But yet Jesus leaves them waiting in the street. I mean, what gives? Remember, when we are reading about the life of Jesus, we are watching someone who is completely true. He's not beholden to anything or anyone, even his family, even his mama. I mean, we just walked through this holiday season. How many of you, don't raise your hand because your mom's probably sitting next to you, how many of you did things that you didn't want to do just because you wanted to make mom happy? J Jesus is completely free from the fear of man, free from false guilt, free from pressure, free from false allegiances. 
I mean, think about how extraordinary, how freeing that must be. There's another occasion where Jesus sits down and he's having a conversation at a well with a Samaritan woman. And, and, and we are, can never really appreciate and just how scandalous, just, just how ridiculous this scenario was. One, Samaritans and Jews, they hated each other. I mean, it was this racist, nasty hatred that had been brewing for a long, long time. If you were a Samaritan, you didn't talk to a Jew. If you were a Jew, you didn't talk to Samaritans. And if you were a Jewish man, you definitely didn't talk to a Samaritan woman. Women back at this point in history, they held virtually no social status whatsoever. Somebody with Jesus' clout would never just sit by and have a conversation with a woman, let alone again a Samaritan woman. And as we're soon going to find here, not just any Samaritan woman, but a promiscuous Samaritan woman at that. And, And so Jesus has this conversation with this woman and he goes on to tell her about this living water that's available to everyone, the same living water that's available to all of you who are watching right now. He's actually talking about himself, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so after having this conversation for a while, she says, please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. And Jesus, in a rather odd response, looks to her and says, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. And she goes, well, surely confused, I don't have a husband, the woman replied, and Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. I mean, if you're anything like me, you you read this, and you think, it's like, oh, gosh, Jesus, that that is brutal. (laughs) Like, like what what a terrible thing to to say to somebody. How, How could you be so blunt? How could you be so insensitive towards somebody that you just met? But, but is it possible as, as we read these interactions, and there's dozens of them throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as, as we read these interactions that, that we perceive as blunt or, or even insensitive is, is actually just a man being 100% true. And, and because all of us, we've never seen this trueness before, we're the ones that don't really know how to take it. I mean, I mean, true, completely free from the fear of man. Th- this is exactly how Jesus was able to navigate praise and contempt so well. Think about it. Neither success nor opposition have any power over him. <laughs> he isn't swayed by either praise or criticism. I mean, c- c- can you even imagine I mean, one day he goes from virtually 100% approval rating. I mean, people are just dying to be around Jesus. These massive crowds are following him everywhere. And the very next day, that same crowd of people is yelling, screaming at him, crucify him. And through all of that, opposition, success, praise, criticism, he is the same man, the same personality, no matter what. He's true to himself, true to his heavenly father, True to what the moment requires, not what people are demanding. He's he's true to love. Church, there is nothing false about Jesus. When you think about it, even the most dishonest of people, they hate being lied to. And it's one thing to tell a lie. It's something entirely different to be a lie. In fact, just this last week, uh, one of the great apologists in all of human history for the Christian faith, he he was outed for sexual misconduct. It it was something that was actually kept a secret for his entire life. He he died actually earlier this year. 
And, and somebody texted me about it. And I was like, please tell me this isn't true. And I read and I was just like, oh my gosh. When I found out, I, I actually was in my car by myself and, and I cried. I was just in my car by myself crying because of what a black eye this will be for the Christian faith. But, but pretty quickly from there, it transitioned to just anger. I, I was almost furious because through this man's actions, he lied about who he was. See, the most essential gift that, that any of us have to offer is ourselves. When you're not true about you, well, you aren't true. But every single one of us, and, and this is so subtle, it's so insidious, every single one of us, we have grown accustomed to committing dozens of little lies about ourselves every single day. Except one man. Jesus. He is completely true. The, the reason that so much of what we read regarding the life of Jesus, which again, look this stuff up for yourself. You can find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The, 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 the reason it, it seems so dizzying, seems so offensive, seems so blunt, at times even cringeworthy, is because we've never seen anyone act like this before. Perhaps we're witnessing one single quality rather than many. Jesus is true. And because nobody else operates this way, it's, it's intoxicating. One last example. There's this occasion where Jesus is traveling to another area and this, this young man who's, who's really wealthy, good looking, comes running up to Jesus and he's like, Jesus, I, I've heard about you. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what must I do to become one of your followers? And so Jesus, he kind of gives them the, the standard run around. He's like, okay, don't lie, don't cheat, you know, honor your father and mother. He rattles off a bunch of those and the guy's like, that's awesome. I, I've been knocking that stuff out of the park since I was a little boy. Like I, I've been a really, really good guy. And then it says, looking at him, Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. That's who he is. He says, there's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. And his disciples had to be thinking, Jesus, you blew it. This, this guy was awesome. He's such a good guy. I and mean, he was so excited. And it's just like, you can't, what, what are you doing? And we read this and we think, geez, Jesus, doesn't that seem a little bit harsh? I mean, he's a pretty good guy. He's been living a pretty good life. I mean, you really, I mean, like, why, why shove him away like that? But, but, but Jesus, being unmoved by the opinion or the fear of man, looked right at this guy and he spoke the truth. And he actually offered the young man the most loving advice available to him. Because just like it's Grumlaw's goal that you all would have a growing, intimate, real relationship with Jesus, I have a bit of a confession here this morning. We stole that from Jesus. It was his desire first. He, he, he longs to be close to you. And, and for this particular man, the, the truth was that, that his wealth would forever be the thing that would get in the way of that relationship becoming everything that it could and should have been. It, it's hard for us to even wrap our heads around a person that, that's so utterly unmoved by praise or criticism, where, where success and opposition have no power over him. 
in a world full of white lies and imposters where, where virtually everyone is fueled by the fear and the opinion of man, this part of Jesus, it's, it's dizzying, it's, it's breathtaking, it's at times intimidating, but if we're all to be completely honest, Christian or not, it's so desirable. What any of us would do to be freed from what people think of me, to be freed from the fear of man, that, that longing to be admired, that the, the falseness that exists inside every single one of us. This one piece of Jesus makes me absolutely adore him. When I think of the trueness of my Savior, I cannot help but utter the words, Jesus, I love you. 